Good afternoon and welcome to our collaborative and ethical consumption session. Um, my name is Annabelle, I'm going to chair this session. Um, we have a lot of content to go through. Our speakers want to speak for 15 minutes, we've got five minutes of Q&A at the time. Um, so I'll get right into it. Um, we have, starting off, we have Agaleki Ageli um, with her talk. Great. Great, so hello everybody, thank you for coming up. I just, just before I start, just to put you in context, this is um, a part of a, a larger sort of project, a, a larger study which is primarily, um, will become a thesis project, but we're funded by a collaborative research centre for low carbon living. So what we're looking at is, broadly, the project looks at home renovations in Australia and how media are implicated in you know, the kind of idea of decision making. But today, I'm only going to pick an aspect of it and talk to you about DIY home renovations and try it and take it from the kind of idea that it's a quite private, let's say, practice that happens usually in a household to something that can become more collective. So just a quick idea of what I'm going to be talking about, like five different things, a little bit of background, a little bit of DIY how it, and how it's pictured in the mainstream media because they've got a big kind of influence. Then introduce the idea from DIY going to do it with others and kind of start to talk about more collective sharing and then idea of uh, social media and collaborative sort of work and then some final thoughts so just to give you an idea. So um, currently households are contributing quite a lot to the total greenhouse gas emissions and generally after an unprecedented kind of development building new homes in Australia um, we kind of know that the extension of lifespan, the, the, the idea of renovating a home is much less carbon intensive to the environment than the demolition and making of new homes. Um, However, still, despite all you know, the changes that the climate is undergoing and you know, all the kind of awareness of things needing more attention environmentally, home renovation, particularly DIY renovations, is engaged primarily with aesthetic changes, despite the fact that Australian homes need something you know, more to kind of future-proof them, such as you know, looking at energy consumption and production. So still, people are primarily concerned with how things look. So, you know, believe it or not, according to House, which is a, an online um, sort of source that we found through our research that people sort of trust in some ways in DIY renovations, uh, says that the key motivations and drivers is to improve the design, look and feel, how things look, how the image and improve functionality, and also they're concerned with the value, obviously. Um, however, things, Good things do not always happen in the idea that they can have be fast, cheap, and good. So you have to kind of decide and pick a couple of these things, otherwise it won't always get to the desired uh, result. So just to put you a little bit in context again, home ownership. It's quite a very strong concept, especially for the Australian household. It's translated and, and kind of connected to the building of identity, to feelings of security, and kind of it's also, you know, the development of a citizenship in that sense. And so the physical structure of the home becomes a, a representation of that. So it's, it's quite important in people's lives. It represents the kind of their ideals, their dreams. So in that context, you know, and at the same time, we know what happened since, you know, the 80s. We are in a kind of that model of neoliberal sort of societies that are promoting consumer-led 
the, the idea of other people call it the stakeholder citizenship that kind of prioritizes individual needs over collective needs. People are kind of pushed to maximize their you know, personal assets and kind of everything is organized around sort of private property and initiatives that need to be taken individually. So this stakeholder citizenship generally promotes the individual decision making rather than a collective decision making and kind of you know achieves in 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 case for example in matters that have got to do with you know this the wider social good people are pushed to be thinking as individuals rather than think of themselves as a collective so under these conditions the maintenance of home so that the society we live in is becoming even more kind of significant culturally and financially as a you know that sustainment of assets that households have got so it's you it's all about you yes you can do it <laughs> and then we've got DIY so that kind of DIY process from moved from the kind of you know post-war let's say practice of DIY for need or for thrift or for the lack of skills and professional things that existed so people you know didn't have the resources to be doing it professionally so they had to do it themselves but it's become gradually a kind of engagement with more consumption and popular media particularly have actually assisted that project really nicely just there you go there's all your shows there's all the resources that we've got so yeah you won't believe what happens next then we've got all these big kind of corporate things that push things and kind of social media particularly and popular media and I'm pretty sure even if you don't follow necessarily some of these shows, you will have heard of you know things like The Block and Renault Rumble, and then all the associated kind of related content. So there might be a television program that has a relevant social, like a, a relevant sorry, a web presence, and then a printed version. So it's kind of following up, and the whole of the media cycle goes on like this, and images have been recirculated. And then the lifestyle you order. So it's basically, it's all about lifestyle. And there's a lot of lifestyle promotion through popular media. And that was the kind of commercial, commercialized side of the DIY renovation. However, on the other hand, we do have that intersection of DIY and sort of activism in that sense, not activism, but the idea of doing it together. So there is, and what we're looking at is that there is a potential into bringing those two together, so kind of thinking from a more neoliberal sort of model of citizenship, moving to the DIY citizenship and kind of people actually saying, we do need to come out of that and we do need to look at what we can do. And in that case, what we are kind of trying to bring up is that there's, you know, there are different ways of looking at this issue. One is to look at the wider macro, you know, societal issues, and then the other one is to look at the behavior, the individual sort of micro worlds. At the same time, the the in between level, which is called the meso level of society, which involves households, is a good point to start in order to kind of contextualize what's going on. So that meso level of the household is between that kind of private sphere and the more public sphere. And it's actually quite a good place to start making people aware of all the issues in order to kind of generate change towards a more low carbon sort of society. So through that, we can look at sort of the maker cultures. And the image 
notice that I've put down now, this is from active research I've been doing. I've been visiting people at home and I've been looking, I've been spending, I'm doing a kind of recorded observation, so an ethnographic sort of, let's say, visit where I follow people around. I've got these video cameras and different storybooks that we fill in together. And they take me through the journey of the renovation. And a lot of it is, you know, I, I, I kind of encounter different things. Sometimes people do it completely on their own. Sometimes people bring some professionals to selectively do stuff. Other people kind of do everything, you know, in different ways. And in this case, I've found that creativity is quite an important part of them. So I went to this house and these owners, they're doing quite a lot of DIY, but not everything. But they were really adamant about the fact that their house had to contain elements that they were handmade, and they were handmade by them. So in that case, they actually made the sink, the design. So this is an, what we call institute. So they build the actual, as the, the kind of vanity, um, let's say, piece in their bathroom. So they had to design and make it on site. So it's kind of, it started off a creative process. Then I visited another home that the owner here was showing me every bit of their house what exactly he made, how he made it. He was showing me his tools. He actually took me over and explained that he inherited all the tools from his dad. So it was a very it was a very detailed process of kind of, you know, leaving his mark onto what he was doing. And then in other cases, a transformation, that gradual transformation of the home makes people happy. They want to be involved. So DIY is not just the case of I run out of money or I don't want to pay someone. It's actually involving a lot of other things inside that kind of can have active involvement. So we've been mapping, um, this is a, a map that we put together about the different kind of stages of renovations in a way. So anything from preconceptions so before they even decide to kind of do stuff to the early stages of design and then moving towards the more active stages of building and then track down what different kinds of media people use. So there's a spread, and there's a spread across this. So for example, TV programs are used quite heavily in the beginning as a way to kind of start off. People just thought they'll get ideas, but then they might move into, um, for example, YouTube comes up as a kind of cross line through all the stages because people are sharing skills, they're learning skills, and YouTube has been a really important tool for them throughout. Then there's online peer-to-peer -peer forums and kind of different um, regulatory websites they might refer to. So there's a mix of kind of digital media and traditional media. So YouTube um, is, a, is a great tool for people to actually share you know, th their skills. But at the same time, there's a cultural context. To it. A lot of people told us that YouTube is great, but because a lot of the videos there was were American, they didn't have the right tools. So they couldn't, they had to go and talk to people in Bunnings, for example, and say, how can I actually do this, but using you know, the tools that we've got. So there's a lot of different things that people are happy to kind of convert and spend time investing. And the other thing is people invest in quite a bit of you know, time and capital into getting the right things for the making as well. So uh, the idea of uh, intermediaries, the idea of getting people involved in a renovation, especially if it's a DIY. So intermediaries, we kind of perceive in this project as any source, not just people that are involved and they have to do with you know, the, the kind of process of renovation. So they could be media organizations, media industry bodies, builders, could be, sorry, the architects, but it could be also the, the retailers and suppliers and product manufacturers. So we're looking at this. and. Um, at this stage, I just wanted to show you a sample. So this is again one of our participants, and that was a long process. I've been in the house, and she was actually um, renovating for investment, 
she was doing everything DIY and she's never done it before. She actually decided at this stage of her life that she's going to start renovating and doing for profit. And she was explaining to me how everything she learned, she learned from Facebook. And it was quite fascinating. I mean, I haven't got a very big impact. So Facebook, in a way, has been your main, um, your center, let's say, of um, the, the data collection. In yeah, your well, once so I found it, so I wasn't yeah. using it. Yeah. And then, I started by creating some pages, yeah. and then I created groups, and then my world changed. So because you can also um, save files and have photo albums. Mm -hmm. So I kept looking for some way to contain everything mm -hmm. in one space so I could easily find it again. Yeah, sure. So I had Excel spreadsheets yeah. and web and pages. So it's like a, uh, almost like your project management in a Yeah, it's like a project management tool. So in here I've got here, so this is different types of flooring options. Mm -hmm. She's giving a painting tip of something that cleans uh, from there. Here, um, I'm looking at, um, so my theme is modern rustic. Mm -hmm. So I just added a bunch of photos that are modern rustic mm -hmm. to just have as inspiration, but there was a blog that did a theme on it. And how often do you think that you visit it in terms of... I use it as my main tool. I use it all day long. So every day, all day, all you day. you're pretty much... So if I on. find something or add yeah, something, yeah. I'm putting it in here. Yeah. So yeah, we did, that was only a part of a long conversation, but she was pretty much project managing through Facebook. And it's quite funny because actually I have recruited this participant through Facebook as well, through a kind of renovators group in Adelaide. So it's, uh, yeah, it's been quite interesting. So then looking back into how we can relate to the idea of converting the kind of more mainstream things that happen on social media is the idea that um, in, in that context, the sharing economy and the idea of you know, how do we transition to a sharing economy in that sense, but how we perceive it is that it eliminates the need for intermediaries, especially in the DIY renovation. So rather than people having to employ someone or trying to find something that they're not necessarily have access to uh, by sharing online and by you know working with people that they're like-minded and they're doing it together it allows them to have access to things that they didn't have before um, and so again going back to our study and looking at some of the homes the idea of repurposing and reusing using online sources like for example Gumtree and other platforms such as Gumtree the idea of people not always necessarily selling selling stuff, but sharing them or saying we offer it for free, please come and get it. And people repurpose and reuse because it's quite important and you know, in terms of waste and how the whole thing happens, it's important for people and especially what in, in quite a few places, even though people don't necessarily consciously do it, they're very aware of the identity of things that, you know, they might have existed in a place and they want to take it in a different context and put it in and continuing that they kind of um, how, how they make home. So that's where we are at the moment, and this is not really a conclusion, this is just some thoughts at this stage, and it's a wider subject, like I said in the beginning. So what we found so far is that people seek emotional support rather than just technical support. So social media and generally kind of all the, the widespread of media at this stage do not necessarily, they're not there as sources to tell you how to do stuff necessarily or only that, but people seek to feel that there's others like them doing it with them or somewhere else, but they can empathize. Then sharing is important to people in the process and at the end of a renovation project, a lot of them have created this big kind of 
uh, files of stuff that they either share it as they go along or they share it at the end as a final project, but they're very keen to share. I was really worried in the initial stages of recruiting participants that people wouldn't let me in their home, particularly if they didn't know me at all. But I found that people really like talking about the process. They enjoy sharing, they enjoy being there, and they're enjoying showing us how, how they're doing it. my last line. So collective action and sharing supports creativity in that context. So people are really happy to be creative. And making eventually is connected. So really, it's something that uh, you know, as this quote kind of nicely says, that if we wait for governments, it will be too late. If we act as individuals, it will be too little. But if we act as communities, it might just be enough. So that's it for me. Thank you, Adeliki. Our next speaker is Jane Milburn from Textile Bank. Um, I'm wearing clothes from the op shop. Um, five years ago, I wouldn't have been able to say that because I guess I was working in a professional sense and I did an op shop. So is anyone else wearing clothes from the op shop? Everything in my wardrobe. Fabulous. <laughs> That's great. I knew I was in the right place at this conference. You know, it really does feel different to um, a lot of other um, places I've... Um, appeared at, although mostly they're sympathetic, but um, my, my perspective is that secondhand is the new organic. You know, you get all these different types of consumption and particularly in the fashion industry, which I don't, I don't come from, I come from this from a resource perspective, but when we, we buy secondhand clothes, we're not adding any chemicals or production stress to the environment. Everything else is just various shades of greenwashing. So um, I have developed, if you just click on this, can you just click on the slide? Yeah, that's it there. So really we're talking about rethinking clothing culture. Um, my background is um, in agricultural science. Like that was my degree. I then became a journalist. Uh, I, I was journalist communications for about 30 years. And then uh, I really like what I've heard a lot about at this conference about purpose. Um, my daughter was uh, finished year 12, um, got two older boys, so suddenly it was a time where I was thinking, well, what means something to me? What do I, what do I really want to do um, to bring things together? So I've whipped through that, um, we can just pop down, we've done um, organic, secondhand being the new organic. Um, this here, I guess, I talk about slow clothing, you know, we've got slow food, I've followed the food story for a long time through my work and now where I'm at really is talking about the clothing equivalent because every day we get dressed and we, we eat breakfast and this is the story about our clothing that considers ethics and sustainability, embracing comfort and connection, like I like the fact that I've curated my own clothes. and. Doubly so. I don't necessarily know a lot about the provenance, but I can tell you which op shop it came from usually. But And also valuing handmade skills because uh, this is actually a number of garments that I've collaged together and they're all natural fibres. Um, so this is what I feel I'm doing, values-based leadership. I've brought together all of my background. Um, I've always been a maker. My values of... Um, authenticity, creativity, autonomy. That's a big one for me that I, I realised. And then also having having a purpose. And I've created Textile Beat mainly just as a vehicle and a name. It's obviously the heart 
um, says it about it's the rhythm to do with textiles and valuing textiles. And I'm now, you know, a sustainability consultant and um, I do a lot of talks and workshops. Um, some here, for example, and I did um, TEDxQT, you can see a bit more detail. I've um, given you a copy of the Slow Clothing Manifesto because when I stepped into this space in 2014, I actually did a whole year of blogging about reuse of um, garments and how I was tweaking them and sewing them. And that's on sewitagain.com if you're interested in that. But what I came to realise is that virtually nobody sews anymore. I mean, hello, I don't know why I didn't sort of tweak to that, but, you know, I grew up at a time when we did, and I guess I know new people that, that um, sewed. So, so now um, I, I had to create a bigger frame of reference that included how most people buy. And the main thing is to be thinking about what you are wearing every day because, you know, your skin is your biggest organ, biggest body organ, and it is alive, and we need to be thinking about how we're covering it up, but also how we're using resources um, that are limited. Um, natural fibres, obviously, we want to prioritise. Quality is a big one. Supporting local business for obvious reasons. Just having a few. Caring for your clothing is really important making, adapting and reviving and salvaging. They're the actions you can take to be more aware of your footprint. So then when we I started thinking about the ethical issues here, we've got increasing consumption, um, a growth in synthetic fibres, which are basically plastic fibres derived from petroleum. And this is not something that we had heard from the fashion industry. Waste and pollution growing, modern day slavery, which is why we've got these cheap clothes we don't, you know, we need to think about that as well and the loss of skills and knowledge about making and clothing. I did up some graphs as I sought to understand what was going on. This blue line is actually um, population increase over the last 20 years. The red line is individual consumption of fibre and you can see it's nearly doubled from 7 kilos per person up to 13 kilos per person here. Um, the same data expressed in a different way and that little dip there is the global financial crisis. This is what shows you that the natural fibres, the total um, production hasn't changed a great deal over 20 years. The big increase in our consumption is in these synthetic fibres, the plastic fibres that Dr Mark Brown has shown are shedding microplastic particles into the ecosystem with every wash and they don't break down, um, they're a different form of plastic. And then, of course, the, the other factor with who, who's wearing natural fibres, like for preference, you know about them, yes. Um, that's a reconstituted natural fibre. Um, but, you know, the synthetics actually um, harbour bacteria, so you need to wash them more and that exacerbates the problem. This just um, shows you that Australia is the second largest consumer of apparel fibre in the world. Here we are. And North America is the only one ahead of us at 37 kilos per person. That's data from Textile World. Um, just looking at waste and pollution, well, you know, what we don't use, I, I think we've got a really good donation culture in Australia, so um, people do pass clothing on, but you need people shopping in op shops to actually use that. And what tends to happen is only about 15% is sold again locally in Australia. The big bulk of it, about half, goes into the global second-hand trade. That was a photo from um, a distribution centre in Brisbane that I, I went to look at. And in 2012, we exported 70 million kilos into the global second-hand trade. That's three kilos per person going to um, Pakistan, 
um, um, UAE and Malaysia. And this is just to show um, that clothing does end up in landfill. War on waste, you would have heard uh, about that, 6,000 kilos every 10 minutes going to landfill in Australia. Um, I, I won't spend time on this because this is well covered and also well addressed by the Fashion Revolution um, group, which I'm, I am a member of. Um, the True Cross documentary, if you haven't seen it, is definitely uh, well worth watching. But the thing is that 72%, most of our clothing in Australia comes from overseas. So we need to be really careful about um, checking the supply chain and transparency. This is an area that, you know, like getting back to this is at the core of, of my actions, I guess. It's the loss of skills and knowledge. People don't even know how to make a garment anymore um, and not mend it or sew on a button. Uh, who in the room would be able to sew on a button? I would say you aren't. But you know, the thing is that we can't solve our problems with the same thinking that was used to create them. And um, you know, there are many people, and, and I have done workshops, say, in a, with a classroom in New South Wales, where half the kids in a year five, six competent composite class had never used a needle and thread before that day. That was last year. So the ones that had have been taught by grandma. And I find, you know, at the school that my daughter went to, you know, a year 12 girl came into the uniform shop and asked the ladies that were volunteering there, oh, can you fix up, fix my hem? So these are issues beyond our group, perhaps. Um, I loved um, hearing um, yesterday uh, this, you know, the, the donut model, you know, just about the regenerate and restore um, resources. Like this really speaks to what, to what I'm doing. Um, and I think as well as the resource angle, we've actually got to think about what else we've lost when we haven't got control over our clothing. And I think um, creativity uh, and our own ability to play, uh, when I do workshops, I really see this as, as a key part of what I do where we are we're engaging with our clothes, we're making them work for us in a better way. And it's actually, like, it's quite fun when you, when you move beyond the scariness. And I'm curious about the fact that people who are makers will, very few of them make clothes for themselves. They're making cushions, if they're reusing, they're doing cushions, accessories, and all these other things. But there's something about the barrier about we can't, we can't do clothes for ourselves. Um, when we do make or upcycle, we also have the opportunity to be individual and use our imagination and be unique, which is, you know, it is a characteristic that's valued, but I guess uh, if you want to um, just be wearing the right thing, which obviously this group is not <laughs> amongst them, but, you know, sometimes people just want to wear the right thing and this is where what leads them to, you know, use the mainstream market. Um, it's limitless, like natural fibres can keep being reused. I mean, I've got garments in my wardrobe that are actually on the fourth upcycle because, I mean, you don't always get it right, uh, but it's, it's actually about seeing the upcycling process as a work in progress. And, you know, your weight might change, um, you might spill some food on something and, you know, you've got to do another little renovation. And these are all things about engaging with our clothes, which does take up a little bit of time. And you do have to have set aside time. I see it as recreation time. I've got a table set up 
where I can watch my ABC TV programs and that's where I tend to do a lot of my um, upcycling. Um, it's mindful because you're really focused on the needle and thread. It's also um, very empowering to be able to take control of your own wardrobe. The other day I was putting on a, a, um, a skivvy and, you know, I pulled a bit of a hole in it and I thought, well, you know, the options are to go and um, buy another one, you know, which I'm probably not doing, uh, or just spend the time just patching it up. And that's what I prefer to do because then it's a work in progress and you've got a garment with a story that's mended. Um, and it's also ethical because, you know, this is a very, I'm very much just talking locally and individual action, but, you know, it is ethical because we know, um, we know where it comes from and that there weren't, uh, wasn't child labour involved or any other extremities. So that's really all I, um, I needed to say on that. I've given you the quick version. Um, so I do talk some workshops um, on, I've got some, one of the, my colleagues that I work with is uh, a, a supply chain. Kerry Richards at Merino Country makes um, wool garments that she manages the supply chain. It's uh, wool from New South Wales. And we're using the offcuts to create um, garments for ourselves. We're, we're just doing a wrap. So I've got some of them coming up in September as the, as the next thing. So anyway, I'll move on, leave it for you, Susan. Okay, thank you. We might take advantage of this time to do a Q&A for our first two speakers. So at this point, are there any questions for Agaliki or Jane? Uh, question. Um did you do any modelling around impact when you were doing the project? Well, I haven't finished yet. So, no. to be honest, I'm halfway through my research now. So, my I've done about, let's say, two-thirds of the, mm. the kind of data collection and I'm still to do some more. So, we haven't yeah, necessarily yet mapped all the outcomes. Yes, especially with um, some sort of more concrete the whole, the wider project of the um, CRC has actually got a few of the findings out which are particularly focused on media, media use. Um, but because my perspective is also a little bit implicating design and every stage of design process, we're still not necessarily okay. Okay. Um, Thanks. My name is Susan Van Hege. Um, there's quite a bit of crossover with some of my information, with Jane's information, so I'll sort of speed through that at the beginning and uh, get to the good stuff at the end. Um, like Jane, I was also involved, my earlier career was as a textile designer, where I worked all over the world, and then later I became, I chucked it all in and became an organic farmer for 10 years, so I was involved in the slow food movement and now I'm super involved in the slow fashion movement as well. So there's a lot of parallels in those two worlds which are um, interesting to see develop. I'll just go manual. So that was a bit of intro. And like Jane, <coughs> um, the human cost of fast fashion is becoming increasingly obvious with the uh, Rana Plaza collapse in 2013. And <coughs> Fashion Revolution has started a social uh, campaign called Who Made Your Clothes, which is uh, becoming increasingly popular around the world. So we've already established this is a very evolved group um, in terms of knowing where, where your clothes come from. 
so in sustainability, <clears throat> three, there are many more, but three basic uh, principles is try and reduce the amount of waste as much as possible by reclaiming um, surplus from textile factories and mills and manufacturing facilities, um, making sure that fair trade labor and ethical production systems are in place or at least trying to improve them as much as possible. And of course, using biodegradable materials is very important. <clears throat> Sorry, I've been doing a lot of talking, my voice is cracking. Um, so since the 60s, uh, as Jane mentioned, these are US figures, but Australia is not that different. Um, distance has reduced accountability, and 95% of our clothes were made locally um, back in the 60s, and today it's less than 3%. So here's a, a graph that shows very clearly our consumption has nearly quadrupled um, worldwide but the quality um, of what we're purchasing has gone down oops, significantly. So this has led to um, something called life cycle thinking, which looks at um, the life of a product, any, any product, uh, and you follow it, it's called often called cradle to grave, where you follow the life cycle of that product from its inception to hopefully its use many, uh, reuse many times over until its final um, demise. And this gives us a true picture of the environmental impact of that product. <clears throat> and one of the tools that they use is uh, called the Life Cycle Assessment Tool. And this is for a cotton t-shirt, but interestingly, <clears throat> because I was involved in food manufacturing, you could just as easily put a tub of pesto or a pasta sauce in there. And with very, very, very minor tweaks, um, this system would be almost identical if you overlaid them. So this is not um, only restricted to the fashion industry. Life cycle assessment is used in many, many industries uh, all over the world. So some of our problems. Um, as Jeremy Rifkin is an American economist and social theorist. Um, has said that he, esti he estimated in his book, uh, Zero Marginal Cost Society, that on a good day, Western uh, companies or economies per perform at about 36% efficiency. Now that is a massive amount of waste that is um, unregulated, unrecognized, because a lot of it is externalized. So again, just some quick figures, very similar to Jane's. Um, this is the apparel consumption since the 19, mid-94. And this is all items in the same time. So again, this shows that the cost of our clothing in comparison to everything else has not only not stayed the same, it's actually gone down. So whereas consumption has gone up, value has gone down significantly. Again, same information, different kind of presentation. Interestingly, H&M opened their first store in New York in early 2000. And that's just about at the juxtaposition where polyester just skyrocketed um, above natural fibers or cotton. Wool has almost flatlined <coughs> in that same time. So uh, Jane touched on this, so I won't spend too much time. Um, truth about polyester, well, there's a lot of bad truths about it. It's non-biodegradable. Uh, it does produce those little microplastics that are killing our marine life and our fish. It's non-breathable, so it's icky to wear, and it's highly, highly energy intensive, as we can see here. <clears throat> a 
when you look at that graph compared to cotton, wool, viscose, linen, and my personal favorite, bamboo, which is near on the list, it's many, many times the requirement for energy. And sadly, often it's coal energy or very dirty energy because, again, this is a U.S. information, but <clears throat> a lot of our imports would come from this area here. And if you overlay that graph with the um, compounding pollution, you'll see that it's almost exactly the same areas. <clears throat> so where does that leave us? Well, Australians purchase 27 gram, uh, grams, kilograms of garments and throw away 23. Uh, the average amount of wares that a garment has is only six. That, that shocked me when I read that. That's just horrendous. And then the human factor, of course, with um, people born into indentured slavery, sometimes many, many generations. The father owed a huge debt, died, and the son had to inherit the debt, and so on. So it's horrific, horrific social conditions. <laughs> so waste is a big, big problem um, in fashion, with companies like Zara producing one million garments every single day. There's no way that um, that could be sustainable. So the problem, part of the problem is you and me will not us in particular, as we worked out, but <laughs> amongst the general public. Um, but if we're part of the problem, we can also be part of the solution. So as consumers, there are certain things you can do. Check your tags, um, use your purchasing power to um, influence companies or brands that you like to buy from to uh, implement more sustainable practices or at least um, make some sort of efforts that uh, minimize their impact. Um, love what you buy. Don't just buy something for Saturday night with the idea, well, um, I can always chuck it. Go organic. It's my personal philosophy. I go organic whenever I possibly can. And try and think of your purchases as cost per wear. So, you know, I bought a beautiful suit over 10 years ago. It was very expensive, but I still have it, and it still looks just as good today as it did then. So I could have bought a suit for a third of the price and bought one every year, so it's actually a false economy. If you buy something that's classic and beautifully made, um, it actually works out cheaper in the long run. Um, so they had a competition that's just a little bit quirky. It's not. <clears throat> they had a competition, and students... Uh, we're told to come up with some um, interesting ways of uh, what we can do to minimize our uh, consumption of highly polluting um, fabrics. And they found some interesting ones. This is a polyester eating microbe that will uh, devour garments and uh, filter out the uh, polymers. And that can be sent back to be reused as a polyester uh, fiber, not ideal, I'm not suggesting that we go down this road, <laughs> but it's still better than um, recreating virgin uh, polyester because it's a petroleum-based resource, which means it needs petroleum and so on and so forth. So it's not ideal, but it's a step in the right direction. Uh, a lot of fruit fibers, they're doing some interesting things with orange and especially pineapple. These are all pineapple fiber. Uh, products. Um, so there's uh, quite a few small little artisan places uh, doing experiments with that. Algae-based fabric. Um, 
looks like uh, uh, cotton uh, requires an enormous amount of water, as, as most of us know. It's about 20,000 liters um, to grow a pair of jeans, or a, not a cotton t-shirt, but it's a pair of jeans. And it requires 25% of all pesticides and insecticides around the world. Uh, it's an enormous amount. A lot of people say, oh, but I only wear organic cotton. Okay, that's a good step, but it still requires enormous amounts of water, even if the pesticides and insecticides have been uh, taken away. So this algae um, only needs the water that it's actually grown in. Um, it leaves all the land free to grow food, which is not a bad idea. Um, so that's another quirky little idea. Cotton into new clothes. So cotton is normally quite hard to recycle in terms of uh, fiber, but they found this uh, environmentally friendly solvent and it dissolves the cotton to a point where it can actually be re-spun into a cotton-like uh, material again. So again, um, re, re, not eliminating the need for a new virgin cotton to be grown. Uh, this is a database to track all wasted uh, fabric on factory floors. So if people want to hook into places where they can source materials to upcycle or to create brand new things uh, instead of buying new fabric, um, this is a great resource to save from landfill and, um, and do something good. A lot of very interesting alternatives to leather as well coming around. This is from Mushrooms, um, a couple of companies doing some interesting things. They um, reduce bacteria, they're pliable, they're soft, they're, you can wear them against your skin. Um, so the Danish company called Mix uh, is actually using commercial mushroom production waste uh, that would theoretically end up in landfill, mix it with hemp or linen, and they're making this whole new uh, flexible fiber to make things out of, so it's very clever. And then there's always upcycling on a cold, rainy Sunday afternoon instead of <laughs> checking your clothes out. Uh, think of clever ways to reuse them and make yourself some new garments at the same time. So as an enterprise, there's a lot, a lot of steps that you can do to decrease your impact and be part of this closed loop um, system to minimize the waste. It also improves your bottom line and you can join an ever-increasing global market of companies who are doing this. And this was an interesting study, this is Mud Jeans, <clears throat> just to show how a few small little tweaks can have a massive impact on the, on the bottom line. Look at these reductions that they've been able to achieve over time. It's really, really, um, and these were just jeans, that's all they do. So some other solutions is things like what we're doing today, getting together and talking about things. Um, Redress, this is Dr. Christina Dean, who's the founder of Redress in Hong Kong. It's a not-profit um, organization that uh, organizes eco-chic design awards every year where they offer prizes to students who uh, compete on who can create the most uh, sustainable collection. And this is their 10th year, so they're doing all sorts of uh, crazy celebrations this year. So if you want to go check them out, <coughs> they do some really wonderful stuff. I was invited a couple of years ago to uh, talk on a panel on influencing the next generation. And uh, this year, they're the China country coordinator for the fashion revolution on the Who Made My Clothes campaign. 
then there's institutions like uh, GOTS, the Global Organic Textile Standard. So I often uh, used to hear students say, well, I just don't know who to turn to, I just don't know what to do, how to get started. Um, this is a database, an ever-growing database of all the, the uh, fiber producers, manufacturers, facilities around the world. Um, so it's a, an enormous database that you can hook into and, and uh, help you on your journey. Uh, Jane already mentioned the True Cost movie, well worth seeing if you haven't seen it. And emerging, technolo <laughs> emerging technologies. So the fashion industry is going to be massively impacted by a lot of these technologies, augmented and virtual reality and personalizing our shopping experience. Blockchain, which we'll talk about in just a moment, is already having a massive in impact. Uh, 3D printing and artificial intelligence and robots will have a huge impact in the years to come. So this is Chanel's uh, new 3D collection. Um, every single item was made on a 3D printer, uh, first of its kind, as far as we know, which is quite amazing. Uh, emerging technologies, wearables, where they actually perform one or several functions for you while you're wearing them. And the blockchain, does anyone know what blockchain is? Um, so it's a massive um, change maker. It's too complicated to get into here and I'm not even sure I'm qualified to explain it properly. But it's a distributed, secure, encrypted digital ledger. Um, it's decentralized so nobody controls it or owns it. Um, <clears throat> imagine it's sort of like we're all nodes on this massive system that can communicate with each other securely. So uh, it's still in its infancy, so where they're going to take it or how far they're going to take it is anybody's um, guess, but it's really fascinating if you want to um, inform yourself on it. It's really, really interesting. This is just one um, <coughs> solution that's using it already, from farm to finished garment. Uh, it's able to track every single step of the way that goes into making a garment from uh, the actual alpaca farm that it was sourced from all the way through every step until it reaches the store. Is there, are there any questions for Susan? A round of applause for Thank you. Yes, yeah. When you mentioned algae for textiles, yep. is there any particular species of algae? Do you know which algae? No, I don't. No, sorry. It was just, I just read it through some research. I didn't really delve that much into it. What are mud jeans? Yeah, mud jeans. What are they? Oh, it's a brand. It's a brand. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> they're, not, they're not made of mud. <laughs> I don't know. Their model is based on leasing the jeans. Oh. So um, you can buy them after a year if you want to keep them. But that's the innovation is leasing. And then they're using 20% recycled cotton in the making. And the rest of the the fiber they get back, they're turning into jumpers. So wow. it is quite a uh, very innovative model. <laughs> okay. Sorry, but I'm gonna have to cut off there. Um, courage of the question, any questions or thoughts to continue? Um, who's coming to dinner tonight?